the, uh, the late Ravi Zacharias said numerous times, when it comes to worldviews, that most worldviews don't take sin into account in a deep enough way. And I think he's absolutely right. Just to clarify what I mean by worldview, we're not talking about worldviews specifically today, but it's worth noting. Worldviews are, are how we see the world and then operate within the world based on that. Sometimes we do that consistently, sometimes inconsistently, sometimes we know uh, and could write down what we believe, and sometimes we couldn't, but we're still going to operate that way. Our beliefs are going to be shown by our action. But I think he's absolutely right, uh, Ravi Zacharias, when he said most worldviews don't take into account sin in a deep enough way. We like to underestimate the power of sin and the effect of sin that it has on me, on you, on the world around us, all of that. And what we're going to see today as we dig a little bit into Genesis 32, a rather pivotal story in the Old Testament, um, is we're going to see that the effects of sin and sin itself, it hasn't been working for Jacob so far. And the effects are being seen all around him and they lead to this point of really truth before God. So what we've seen so far, if we remember, Jacob uh, is the third uh, in line of the covenant promise, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we often hear throughout Scripture, that God made this covenant with Abraham, and through his family line, the entire world would be blessed. That includes you and me sitting in this room and watching online today, that we would be blessed by that covenant God made thousands of years ago with Abraham. Now, ultimately, that comes through Jesus Christ. They don't know that yet, but they have to still live faithfully into it and with God in this way. What's happened for Jacob is that at this stage of his life, about 20 years after he's had a, an encounter with God at Bethel, after leaving his family and going to the, the origin of the, their family line, the place of origin, now he's been there for a long time. He's married. He's got plenty of kids at this point. He's got uh, his flocks have increased uh, through a little... Um, you know, trickery on his own part again, because that seems to be his M.O. He's tricked his father-in-law still on that, and his father-in-law will figure it out eventually. Laban, his father-in-law, is also kind of wasting some of the family inheritance along with this, which causes some problems. So he, there's starting to be a rift that's deepening between Jacob and his father-in-law. You can also see that there's starting to be trouble in the home by this point, as he's got two different wives now, and functionally four wives, because they each have servants that serve them and he's got kids with all of them now and they've been kind of bickering back and forth about this and holding it over one another which leads me to a point that's just a side point but worth noting polygamy doesn't work it's not God's intent polygamy breeds envy jealousy enmity and injustice it just doesn't work and it might seem like it's a throwaway kind of thing to point out but keep reading the headlines keep that in mind polygamy doesn't work but what happens is things come to a head for Jacob. Things finally come to a head, and so Jacob takes his family and his flocks, and he sneaks away in the middle of the night, which doesn't make Laban, his father-in-law, happy. Uh, Jacob doesn't really want to do it, but now he's headed back to where he came from, and he doesn't really know what he's going to have. But if you can think this through, what's gone on has fallen apart so much where he is that he's willing to go back home and face the brother who he tricked who wants to kill him. Things have gotten bad for Jacob if that's the direction that he's planning to go. Maybe things will go better if I go there, he's thinking. The bottom line you can see from all of this is that sin destroys. 
That's what it does. By its very nature, sin destroys. It destroys our relationship with God, and it destroys our relationship with others. It creates conflict wherever it goes. And when it comes to that relationship with God, Jacob should have had a more robust relationship with the God of the covenant, with the God of Abraham and Isaac, and it should have been with Jacob. 20 years, he's pretty much squandered that as far as we can tell. He hasn't done anything with the fact that he encountered God at Bethel. And then, of course, the relationships with all the other humans in his life, he's pretty well made a mess of that by this point. Sin destroys. But the good news today is that what sin destroys, God can make new. Isn't that some good news for today? What sin destroys, God can make new. So let's read the text. Genesis 32 is where we're turning today, starting at verses 22 and going on to 32. A major pivotal point in all of Scripture, and yet as you get to the end of it, you think, I wish I had a little more detail, but I think we get enough. I think we get enough to work with here. So let's go to Genesis 32, starting at verse 22. It says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Yabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Now, there's a little wordplay that's going on here in the original Hebrew that um, I think is just worth noting. And what happens is, Jacob, 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 Yibach at the Yabak is what's going on here. Jacob, Jacob, Yibach wrestled at the Yabak River. Kind of fun, huh? So Jacob wrestled with, with this man at the river. And the only reason I think it's, it's worth noting is sometimes that happens in Scripture where there are these sort of playful ways that it's delivered to us that help us realize that something important has happened. You have this sort of confluence of words that also shows you there's a confluence of things going on in the life of Jacob at this point. He can't ignore the fact that somebody is there pressing him at this point to make a decision, to do something, to change. All the stuff that he was trying to do to make his life work wasn't working, and now all of a sudden it's all come down to this point. So what Jacob realizes at this point at the Yabbok River is that Jacob could no longer run from his own trouble. We said last week, the bill will come due on that kind of thing. Guess what? It did. It's come due. And secondly, Jacob could no longer ignore God's invitation to return to him, to the God of the covenant. Now all of a sudden he has to answer. And so it leads us to the question uh, that probably sits on our minds as you read this. 
who is the man that he's wrestling? It just says a man until daybreak. It's a weird way to say it. And it's a curious thing. Uh, we can see that both in the text we have some evidence. And then uh, if you read Hosea 12, it also points back to this and says he was wrestling God pretty clearly. Here he says, he names the place Peniel, which means what? I saw the face of God and lived. So he's wrestling God is what we can tell from the text. In some way, shape, or form, God is there wrestling Jacob. But what's weird about it, as you read it, is it seems like Jacob's stronger than God, doesn't it? He can't overpower him. They wrestle till daybreak, and he can't overpower him. But let me give you a pro tip for reading the Bible. This is helpful. Look for all the details and clues that you find. Read it and reread it so that you can catch all the details. Because is it really that the man couldn't overpower him or not? What does he do? He touches the socket of his hip and he wrenches with pain. Obviously, he can overpower him physically. He could do some damage. There seems to be something more going on here about what needs to be overpowered. Is it perhaps something more like the will and the spirit that needs to be overpowered in this case? Jacob needs to yield that to the man, to God. So what we can see here in Jacob's personality, I think, we're familiar with the fight or flight mechanism. We talk about this uh, in life sometimes that when uh, uh, something critical happens in front of us where we have to make a decision, do I go in and help that person on the side of the road or go into an argument or whatever it is, or do I flee from it? You know, the very simple polarities there. Um, we kind of have a mechanism already triggered in us sometimes of I'm going to run or I'm going to get into it. Um, Jacob seems to have those things on full blast sometimes as well, just like we do. And so Jacob, when he, in his life, he's deceived his brother. His brother wanted to kill him. He's deceived his father, and he received the blessing and then had to flee from all that. Then he deceived his father-in-law after being deceived by his father-in-law. He, he met God at Bethel, but he didn't really do anything. He kind of fled from that. He's kind of fled from a lot of his problems when they've gotten really difficult. And you can kind of see that he's fled from those problems because he's trying to control his own story. He's trying to control his story, his life, and his situation. He's not going to let God do that. He's going to do it. And now God comes knocking. I mean, very presently knocking. And he sees Jacob is failing to write his own story well, which isn't what he was supposed to do anyways. He's just failing at all the things around him. It was never God's intent that Jacob would make, it a, make a mess of his life like this. That the effects of sin would, would so mess up all that God had planned from Jacob's own sinful heart. He couldn't flee anymore. Jacob needed to choose God and be made new. And so as you consider that, as you think of Jacob, as you think about the fact that the bills come due, as the fact that life is a mess, that there need to be things that change, ask yourself this question. As we prepared in worship, I said, let's just take a moment to stop and ask for God's presence. As you consider that, is God knocking right now, calling you to choose him? Because our fight-or-flight mechanism can be turned on pretty high, too, for one of those things or the other when it comes to God, quite regularly, right? Some of us, some of us fight with God. And 
you know, God wrestles Jacob. He doesn't say, oh, no, we better stop doing it. He wrestles Jacob. We can wrestle with God. We can fight with God. But some of us do that, and we will not yield like Jacob. There's no way. We're going to fight with God over grief, over loss, over pain, over rejection, over all the things that we're struggling with. Why, God, why? That's fine. We can wrestle. But at some point, we have to yield our will to God. And for others of us, we can run from God and from all those things where life and the effects of sin have caught up to us and it's gotten too hard to turn inward and face those things. I talked last week and sent uh, in the email the idea of doing the examine. There's all kinds of different tools you could use to look inward and say, what needs to be changed in me, God? What am I withholding from you that I need to hand over to you? We can do those things. We can do any combination of those things when it comes to God and the difficult things that happen in this life and the effects of sin, whether we caused them or somebody else put them on us. But at some point, we have to yield to God because God's invitation to Jacob and God's invitation to us really is, will you continue to live by your rules or mine? Will you continue to live by your promises or mine? That's what he's doing with Jacob. Are you going to yield your will to my will and your promises which aren't working out to mine i mean really god could have worked looked at jacob in that moment looking at all the mess that had come in life and it could have been a dr phil moment right he could have looked and he just said how is that working out for you right this isn't working buddy yield What sin destroys, God can make new. That's the good news today. Let's ask the question of what renewal means, and let's look at what Jacob, uh, how that renewal works in Jacob's life. What God does for Jacob, and in fact, what he does for any of us, and he does it through Jesus Christ for us, is when God renews, he gives us a new identity. And this is one of the areas where people flee uh, quite regularly from God or wrestle with God. Who am I? Who am I supposed to be? We, we wrestle with God or, or flee from that question all the time, looking anywhere but God sometimes for that. But God's renewal means a new identity. Literally, Jacob gets a new name. He's no longer Jacob after this. He's Israel, the one who wrestles with God. He, we, we know that there's some activity to that. He's going to continue to work with God in that way until God can work through him fully. And we can see, though, how God renews us. Ezekiel 36, really, it's a precursor to the entire New Testament. Ezekiel 36, starting at verse uh, 26, it says, I will give you, this is God speaking through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's the promise of what God is going to do through this covenant. And it's going to come to fruition through Jesus Christ. That the new identity means new motivations. New purpose. The right purpose in us. Rather than trying to struggle on our own and giving in to the effects of sin and sinfulness constantly. Through Jesus, God produces a new heart in you and me. Which means a new identity. I belong to him first. Not simply to myself. And that leads to the second thing, which I already alluded to, that God's renewal doesn't just mean a new identity, but a new purpose. We have new tasks because we follow Jesus, and God has renewed us through Jesus. After the renaming, 
what we see in Jacob is that he tries to pull the power back to himself. He tries to even the tables again with the man. If you look at verse 29, what does Jacob ask for? He says, please tell me your name. So Jacob was asked by God, what's your name? Of course God knew his name. What's your name? I'm going to rename you, right? But now Jacob says, please tell me your name. Now in the ancient world, to know somebody's name was to have some leverage over them because names had meaning, right? If we did a poll uh, online, you can put the name of your meaning in the comments. That'd be interesting for people to see. But if you know the meaning of your name, it's really hit or miss if you ask people, what's the meaning of your name? Some people know, some people don't. We don't often do much with it in our culture. Ancient world, they did a lot with it. It was aspirational. You might give it to someone or it was descriptive, but whatever it is, to know somebody's name is to have some kind of leverage or power over them in some way or to even the tables if you both know each other's names, right? Because you know something about the personality, the family history, all of that stuff that goes with it. That's what Jacob's trying to do. He's trying to pull back his own story again and say, well, no, I'll give you my will, but not entirely. I'll take the blessing, but, but I want to be in control of some of this. And God says, no, that's not how this works. He blesses him. You don't get that kind of control. You yield to my will. That's the whole point of this. Sidney uh, Gradanus, a New Testament scholar, says before self-sufficient Jacob can enter the promised land, God needs to change Jacob into Israel, a person who strives with God for his blessing. Right? That's what the wrestling is. They're wrestling together for God's glory at that point, not simply for Jacob's glory so that Jacob can get something. And the blessing is ultimately for all humanity, but that's just it. It's for God's glory, really. That's the ultimate reality of what this blessing is for. But Jacob in this moment hasn't fully yielded because he's trying to get the blessing without making the investment. And God says you can't do that. They go together. And you can think about that. Um, whenever we kind of pay for something, we want to get our money's worth, right? We're invested. Uh, we did a... In, a previous church I served, there was a group that did an after-school tutoring program uh, for kids, and at first they offered it free, and they found that a lot of kids signed up, and then they kept dropping off as the year went on. But just a nominal fee of $10 meant more kids hung on for longer periods of time. Why? Because they were invested. It's pretty simple. It wasn't, didn't really pay for much. It just meant that they were invested in what was going on. Jacob needs to invest, not just try and get the blessing from God. And God says, that's the only way you're going to get it, is to invest. Because this is really for my glory. What changes for Jacob? You know, nothing big. Just his uh, life goals and his motivation in life. And his identity. Just small things, right? That's all that changes for Jacob in this moment. But I want to point out, and I think it's worth pointing out, I, I want to read a passage from 1 John that I think ties some of this together for us since we started with sin and, and the effects and, and we end here. Um, in this day and age, I think it needs to be made clear that when we talk about the transformation that happens through Jesus Christ and what God wants to do through Jesus with a new heart, a new motivation, a new purpose, those sorts of things, that's not just becoming your best self and sort of self-change uh, from the self-help section of the bookstore or Amazon or wherever you may find it. That stuff's fine, it's good, but the end result is not going to be in the transformation of who we're supposed to be in the redeemed image of Jesus Christ, of God's image in us through Jesus Christ. 
that new heart, that new motivation, that new purpose only comes through Jesus Christ and God's work in us through Jesus Christ, putting a new heart in us and God's spirit in us. We can't do that ourselves. So sometimes people will talk in our day and age about um, saying yes to Jesus, but actually they didn't really say yes to Jesus. They said it kind of like Jacob was trying to say it. Not really willing to fully invest, but they want to get the blessing that comes with it. And God says that's not how it works. You're fully committed. You're saying no to sin and no to the effects of sin. And you're saying yes to the transformation of God through Jesus Christ and his spirit. And it's going to make a new you from inside out. And your motivation and your goals are God's now. You don't get to write your own story. You're writing God's story for God's glory. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, John tells us a little something about sin and what's supposed to change in us. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. That's the change that begins. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What sin destroys, God can make new. Can God do that in you today?